This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Raviputi. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is being brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is award-winning case management software used to manage personal injury, medical malpractice, MDL, class action law firms all over the United States. Great program. Highly recommend it. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. Today's episode is being brought to you by Expert Institute. Expert Institute is the place to go for everything involving experts to help you win your case. Check them out at expertinstitute.com. And today's episode is being brought to you by Hype Legal. Hype Legal is a one-stop shop for all of your digital marketing needs. Check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Rahul Ravipudi. I'm Ben Gideon. So Rahul, I, I was uh, with your partner and colleague, Brian Panish, uh, last week, and he has nothing but great things to say about you and uh, how impressed he is by you and how much he likes you. But he really likes and is impressed with your wife. And I didn't realize what an impressive, high-level person she was until Brian extolled all of her virtues. So I can't believe we've gone this long on the podcast without talking about your wife. Can you tell us more about her? Well, I think you and I both married up, Ben. So, uh, you know, outside of the legal world, I'm known as uh, Smith's husband. And um, she went to Northwestern and then got her master's in public health over at Columbia University and then decided to come all the way over here to California to, to woo me. But then she is now the CEO of USC Care, which is part of the Keck School of Medicine and is the vice president of all of their ambulatory operations. So USC and Keck is one of the largest private healthcare systems in Southern California. And uh, she runs all of their outpatient facilities, their medical group with their almost 2,000 doctors and a whole ton of other things. It's a, it's a lofty gig and she's super smart super competent and um i don't even know why she likes hanging out with me so now i understand why you're always the one dropping the kids off at uh, different events yeah exactly and um how do you guys i mean with the two high-powered positions both of you have uh, and the time commitments how do you possibly manage to uh the family side you know i think with every passing year i get more honest about it which is we don't and uh, we just try our best. And um, Smith's parents live about a mile down the road, and so they help out a lot as well. But we're firm believers that we kind of inspire a little bit by osmosis and that they see what their parents are doing and they realize that working hard and doing good things is is important and you can enjoy doing it. And then when we're home, we're we're really happy people. So we have quality time with our kids whenever we have that time with them. I wish, I wish it was a better answer. Like it's just so easy, you know, it's like you, you do these jobs and you 
have variable work hours, which are somewhere between, you know, a little sleep and no sleep. And, you know, it's just so easy to raise three kids, but just isn't. But it's so much fun. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Wow. Well, that was a great start, by the way, Ben. So uh, appreciate you asking. How was the Inner Circle event? This is the mid-year event of the best trial lawyers in the world, all convening in Texas. I saw some Facebook pictures of you at the uh, UT field. That's pretty cool. Yeah, an event sponsored by uh, Jason Nitkin and Kurt Arnold, which was terrific. But uh, no, it was, a, it was really nice to have our mid-year meeting uh, held in person again. I think this is the first year since the pandemic we've done in-person meeting. We've done our annual meetings in person, but the mid-year have still been Zoom up until this year. So that was really great. And this is just some, every time I leave those meetings, I come away so motivated and inspired. There was a really amazing story this year by uh, of, a, of a case that Randy McGinn and uh, Zoe Littlepage just tried. Um, and hopefully we can get one or both on the podcast to talk about it. But it was this incredible young woman from Uganda who was is a celebrity in her country and had done all these incredible things, including building a $40 million hospital to treat young women and starting organizations to empower young women in a country where there's a lot of brutality and violence against women. And, um, and then she came to the United States and she was hiking in a national park with her then husband. They had just gotten married and this crazy thing happened where as they were leaving the park, the uh, gate to the park uh, swung in the wind and came through their vehicle and literally decapitated her. And so this case ended up being a federal tort claims case tried to a 96-year-old federal judge in Utah. And I'll save the rest of the story for when they one or both comes on the podcast. But it was really inspiring to hear about that story, particularly the story of this, of this woman and uh, how sad it was that of all the people that this crazy accident would have, uh, whose life, life uh, would have taken, it would have been this one who had done so much and probably would have done so much more in her life, but great meeting. Well, today, Ben Cloward joins us. Ben, one of the best trial lawyers out in Nevada and a good friend of mine. And it's so great to have you on the show. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, starting at the very tip of the spear in the most recent uh, moments, Ben, you've just started your own firm. Yeah, I just started my own firm, uh, second time out doing my own thing. So it's, uh, it's exciting. All the administrative stuff is sure a lot of fun. <laughs> Payroll, insurance, <laughs> all of those things. But yeah, it's it's a great experience so far. Did you start the firm by yourself or did you do you have other lawyers that uh, started it with you? So I have a couple of partners, uh, Ian Estrada and Landon Littlefield, and they're fantastic lawyers, great friends, good guys to be with, very smart. They're just awesome. I can relate because it's been about two and a half years since I started my own firm after being at the same large plaintiff's firm for about 17 years. And uh, it is no small task to get to launch a new law firm. So congratulations for yeah. doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And that was kind of my, almost my story to 14 years on or off 
at a large firm here in Nevada. So it's been good though. So just flashing back to the beginning for some of the listeners who are getting to know you, Ben, give us a little bit of background on how you decided to become a trial lawyer. Well, I'm a fairly religious person and uh, I this is one of the tender mercies, I, I feel like, of God. I kind of fell into this, not really by choice, but I feel like it fits my personality. I've always had a, a sense of what's right, what's wrong, a strong sense of justice. I don't like people bullying other people. And I didn't know any lawyers growing up. I didn't know specifically any plaintiff lawyers. And I went to law school after a very brief summer job where one of my friends was a runner at a downtown law firm and he was telling me war stories that the trial lawyers would tell him on the elevator ride up and down. And I just thought, man, that sounds pretty cool. And then uh, I got into it and just found that it really fit my personality. I like to fight. I like to, I really like to push against insurance companies, push against companies that are picking on the little guy. And I really feel like that's why I've had the success that I've had is just really that sense of justice and what's right, what's wrong. And so I wish I could say, hey, you know, I had this experience uh, and that motivated me, but I really feel grateful, a lot of gratitude uh, that I I am where I am. Dumb luck. (laughs) You're in Las Vegas now, but where did you, no one is really from Vegas, I've learned. Where where are you originally from and how did you end up in Las Vegas? Yeah, that's that's very true. We we always say if you've been here for like five years, you're considered, you know, local <laughs> because nobody is from here. I grew up in a little farming town in Utah called Salem. No stoplight, one gas station, just a little small small town. And I went to the University of Utah for law school, finished there anyway. And there was a firm that insurance defense firm that did recruiting. And uh, I recruited, got recruited, came down here, did insurance defense for about nine months. And, and that was about all I could, all I could handle. So I uh, decided to, to switch over to the plaintiff. I still remember the case where I drafted a motion to dismiss or motion for summary judgment and uh, got the case dismissed. And the, and the, the plaintiff wrote us a letter and uh, as the defense lawyers. And I remember getting that letter and I just felt absolutely, absolutely terrible and just said, no more, can't do this. What did the letter say? You know, it was explaining her cause and her position and her emotional, uh, just, I got to see who the human behind the, the name on the defendant or on the plaintiff caption like, hey, this is an actual human being that we've just done this to, not just somebody on one side of the V. And uh, I still have regrets about that. You know, I feel bad to this day. You mentioned that you're a, a religious person and that kind of fits with the, the career in some way. How, how do you, what, what are the um, connections in your mind between your religion and the work you do? Yeah, so I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Sometimes people call it the Mormons. We do a lot of service. 
service is a really big thing in our in our church. And uh, I, I feel like I'm very lucky because I get paid to serve other people. I feel like our calling, and I, I think you guys probably feel the same way. If you're really a good trial lawyer, you feel like your job is a higher calling. I mean, you're holding companies to task. You are changing people's lives. You are writing as much as the law can wrongs that have been done to people. You know, a lot of times Jerry Spence has a, a voir dire and a closing that he talks about money justice. That's all the justice that's available. You know, true justice would be bringing people back or restoring them to their their pre-injury status. We can't do that. There's no magic wand. But what we can do is is through money, try to compensate them, try to replace what's been taken. And so I feel like what we do is we're really serving people. We're helping them get back to that, that place where they were before the tragic event. And uh, it's, I feel like it's just service to our fellow beings and we get paid for it. So I just feel like we're, we're very, very blessed for what we do. Do you talk about your faith in the courtroom? I don't. I don't. Is that something you, you I mean, it seems like there's jurisdictions where that's done more commonly. And I, I would think, and I'm interested in your thoughts about or views on this in Utah, where I would imagine many of the jurors, if not most, are, are of more, the Mormon faith, that it might be more common to talk about those things uh, in a courtroom overtly. I think you're probably right. I'm also licensed in Utah. I tried a case in federal court there. I've had some other cases. We haven't uh, tried any others than that. But I think it probably is more common. I've always just felt like that's manipulative. And so I don't like to do that. I, I think it's a little more sacred and personal. And, and so I don't want to manipulate people by talking about that. I just have never felt right about that. What do you mean by that, though? Well, using religion to motivate. For me, I just, I feel like if I'm doing that, and again, this some people maybe feel strongly about that. Some people maybe it works for. It's kind of like using religion to get a desired outcome, as as far as a verdict goes. I've just never felt right about that. It's kind of like you know sometimes you see people posting things on the internet about all the service that they do, and and I just the scriptures tell me do your service in private. Otherwise, you know, your reward is getting the accolade or getting the acknowledgement or recognition. I'd rather have my <laughs> reward in, in heaven, you know. So that's just how I, I view it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that because some people maybe have a different view. Uh, so it, maybe it works for some people. I've just always felt that way. Have you ever found at times when you feel like what you're doing conflicts with your religious views or beliefs in, in the sense that your moral code that you live by, you know, I, if you do this for long enough, at some point you'll encounter a, a client who maybe you don't, you know, believe is telling the truth or a defendant in a case that's particularly sympathetic where, you know, you feel badly about going after them because Maybe they're a victim too in some way. But do, do you find there's moments like that for you? And how do you reconcile that? 
with your your beliefs? Sure, not very often. I would say on I can count the the times maybe on one hand. I have a big deal. I don't represent people that I feel like are lying. I just don't. It's it's my number one my number one thing. I feel like it's a duty and an obligation that we all have as as plaintiff lawyers. And I think that's why, and again, I don't want to cast a big net on this, but I feel like a lot of defendants are corrupt. Uh, a lot of companies, insurance companies, they lie about things and and we need to elevate our profession altogether. And we can't do that on behalf of defendants, but what we can do is, is as a plaintiff bar, raise the bar. So when I have had a, a couple of clients and I, I can think of them in my mind, I've just pulled them in and said, hey, look, this is what I think. And I'm sorry, but I, I can't represent you anymore. You're going to have to find another lawyer. But my experience in answering your, your greater question, do I find that it conflicts with my, with my moral code? Absolutely not. It's just quite the opposite. And the thing that I've learned uh, that is just remarkable to me is that, in my view, again, there's one God. We're all his children. I've represented people from across all sorts of faiths, Jewish faith, Hindu, Christians, non-believers, and in my view, in representing them and in trial, you really get to know people. Uh, my impression has always just been that there's one God. He loves us all, wants us to all be happy. And so it's it's been kind of a cool experience for me. Oh, I wanted to hear about some of your cases. I, I see that you got a, a $38 million verdict in a uh, security, negligent security case. And as somebody who's heading toward trial in a security case myself, I'd be, and probably many of our listeners have one or more of those cases. I'm very interested in how you put that together, what the case was about, and how you obtained that huge verdict. Yeah, so the, a lot of different aspects to that case, a lot of hard work involved in the litigation phase. I think, you know, a lot of times lawyers look at a verdict and they, they think, oh, you know, they must be the best trial lawyer. You know, they must have you know, had these great words of, of persuasion in the presentation, but as y'all probably know, you never go to trial and have a great result without having a great result in litigation and really developing the case. And in, in our case, this apartment complex is the most dangerous, or at the time, the relevant time period, was the most dangerous apartment complex in Nevada defined by numerous metrics, you know, how many people had died there, how many violent crimes had taken place there, uh, the calls for service. I mean, this place had more calls for service than any other apartment complex. As a matter of fact, it was like the number four crime for service, calls for service in the entire city of Las Vegas. So only McCarran Airport, a couple large casinos had more calls for service large casinos that had millions of visitors and this little apartment complex only had 665 units and it had more calls for service than many of the strip casinos. So the setup, but getting all of that was a fight, taking a lot of the Metro depositions. I mean, Metro at one point would not allow their officers 
to go to this apartment complex alone. They had a, a policy that you had to be as a, as a team. And Metro had developed a program, a crime prevention, or, or I guess a crime program called the Sportsman's Area Project. And Sportsman's was the name of this complex. And what they found was that that complex was the root of all of the problems on Boulder Highway. Boulder Highway is a high crime area. And they felt like, or I guess their research and statistics showed that the majority of crime originated from that complex. And so it was a lot of depositions to find those documents. And, you know, a, a really great lawyer here in Las Vegas, I, I have to give him props. Uh, Craig Drummond had done some discovery, found some of these key documents. He'd litigated a case uh, similar to us, found some of those, and then we found a whole bunch more. I mean, we after doing all the discovery, we had something like 15, 16,000 pages of, of materials and documents and incident reports and police reports. And I mean, it was crazy. At trial, we had like 150, 160, maybe even more binders. I mean, we had to buy a bunch of rolling carts just to put the, <laughs> the binders on the carts to comb through the data and comb through the calls for service. I mean, they had crimes ranging from burglary, robbery, assault, battery, stabbings, shootings, murder, two people beaten to death with a lead pipe, rape, trafficking. I mean, you name it, the crime took place at this location. It was terrible. What happened to you know your client and, and how did that data, how were you able to use that in the courtroom? So unfortunately, my client was, uh, was murdered there. Uh, he pulled up early in the morning on the, the morning after Cinco de Mayo. He was there to see a friend, a girlfriend, and uh, some 18th Street gang members were there. And as he pulled in, they approached his vehicle, I think, to carjack him and, and shot him through the window, uh, killing him. And uh, what we found through the discovery process is that Metro had been out there specifically on that issue of gang problems that a captain in the Las Vegas police force had requested a sit down meeting with the owner of the of the complex and the the owner just blew him off and to give the listeners an idea like a captain in in Las Vegas is a really big deal a captain is the way that the hierarchy of of the police force here is structured is you have the sheriff and you have the under sheriff and then you have the captains. So there's one person, another person, and then and then like only six captains. They all have different area command. So, you know, a captain is a really big deal. When a captain asks you for a sit-down meeting, you go and do that as the property owner. Uh, but what we found is Metro had done everything possible to try and clean this place up. And this is a lot of the additional discovery that we found as we progressed through the, the phase. Like the first thing is Metro approached them and said, hey, we think you should do X, Y, Z. And they said, no. They said, no. So Metro said, okay, well, we're going to do this CMART. And a CMART is a county multi-agency task response where they say, okay, you're not going to participate. You're not going to help us do what we want you to do. You're not going to implement these changes. All right, well, we're going to send 
the code enforcement folks. We're going to send the health department down. We're going to send the fire department down, look for code violations. We're going to send all of these agencies in the county. We're going to descend upon your your place of business, and we're going to find whatever violation we can find. We're going to kind of force you to comply. Then after that wasn't successful, they implemented a red card program where they would issue a red card every time there was a serious event, and they would follow up on that. When the crime still wasn't going down, then they said, okay, we're going to implement this sportsman's area project. And it was crazy because we were able to prove that as certain things that Metro did to force this property owner to change his ways, the spending would go up just a little bit on security. And then when Metro pulled back, it was right back down to where it was before. The crime would go up, Metro would get involved, and the crime would or the spending would go right down. I mean, they would have like two security guards that were armed to you know, one security guard every other shift kind of a thing. It was nuts. I mean, we were able to prove that showing the dates. I mean, and it was like a week after, like Metro gives them a certification, like, okay, you, you accomplished this, you know, you completed this program. Thank you. And then honestly, the next week we would show that the shifts were drastically cut. So it was nuts. So in listening to you summarize the case, you did something that I think is really effective and was really kind of, you focused on the defendant and the crime-ridden neighborhood. We almost had to pry out of you what exactly happened uh, to your client in the moments of the event. But I think prior to you even telling us that, pretty easy for us to discern the tragedy that was about to happen from that level of uh, danger that existed in that area and it sounded like at the landlords um allowing so it's crazy so now what was the defense and how did the defense try and like shift everything back into the moments of time and there's a third party criminals that actually committed the crime and the murder yeah so actually rahul i've got to give big props to you yeah, i think in your moriarty 160 million verdict, whatever that crazy amount was. I met with you way early in the process and you shared a a brief on the non-delegable duty, the Rockwell case here in Nevada. And it was a fantastic brief and we used that. And I mean, there are so many aspects of this, of this case, so many deep dives that, that we could do. One of the things that we discovered was that, and this is a little bit some Lura details that you may have to cut this out. I don't know. But one of the security officers, the security officer on the night of my client's murder had, a, had approached these gang members three different times. The policy required him to, to kick them off the property because they weren't guests. They weren't tenants. They were there just, you know, under false IDs. If he had just simply, or not false IDs, but they were there um, illegally, essentially. Had he simply run their name in a database, he would have found that they were all convicted felons of very violent crimes. And so he should have kicked them off the property. But this guy, I think, was was in on the take. He was in on some criminal activity. The testimony was from one of the witnesses that we tracked down, that we found, 
was that he was trading sexual favors to look the other way for some of the prostitutes that were there, actually opening doors for them to commit this this crime, just doing things like that, that he was buying and selling drugs there himself. So when we presented this information to the owner through the, the 30B6 designee, we got them to basically dish big time on the security company saying, oh yeah, that's that's a conscious disregard. <laughs> do you agree that that's a conscious disregard of the rights and safety of others to, to do X, Y, Z? Oh yeah, that's a terrible thing. And you agree that that's despicable conduct, right? Oh yeah, that's totally despicable. And <clears throat> I mean, they really, really dished big time on, on the security company. And as Rahul knows, in Nevada, that's a non-delegable duty. So doing that is essentially you're saying, okay, yeah, the security guard that we hired under this this case and this uh, authority says is actually your employee for the purposes of this analysis. So your own employee is engaged in this. And then we were able to show that they ratified this behavior because they obtained information about this guard. They had information. One of the higher-ups in the security company that we deposed said that he knew about some of these activities, about this kind of quid pro quo, I'll trade you this if you give me that type of a thing, that that was actually reported to the property owner and there were no actions. In fact, we found one email that said, you know, hey, we need some heavy hitters at our, at our property. They wanted folks that, who knows, would I guess look the other way. And one of the themes that we developed in the case was that that the property owner wanted this type of business at his property because it's all cash pay, right? If you have cash pay, you don't have to pay taxes on it. And after one of our lawsuits, we actually have two lawsuits against them. We still have one that's on, that's um, ongoing in a second phase, a bad faith phase, but after the second shooting, this guy transfers $10 million from one entity that he has to another entity, or from this entity, makes a loan and encumbers the property, basically strips all the equity out of the property. And he's the sole member of, of all of these companies. So it was, it was crazy. It's a crazy case. So that initial verdict was in February of 2020. Has the have they cleaned up their act at all since? Do you think this has had an impact on, on the, the way they've managed that uh, business? I think they've tried to have the public appearance that they have, that they've cleaned up their act. But the owner of this property has owned it for 25 years. He built the property. And we showed since 2007, we were able to show and document that as Metro came in, requested changes, he would clean up his act until the, the spotlight was no longer on him. And when the spotlight was off of him, that actually was one of our themes. That was one of the, the closing argument slides that I had. Or as a matter of fact, even in opening, we showed, hey, when the spotlight is on this owner, he would clean up his act. The second the spotlight was off, then it was business back to usual. So I think there was so much negative publicity on his property after this, a lot of the news companies had done stories before that on just how many people were dying out there. I mean, I think my client was like the sixth or seventh person 
that we know was documented that was murdered there. Some of the detectives said, when we said six or seven is what we know, they're like, no, nah, it's got to be more. I've personally been out there like five or six times and for homicide investigation. And I'm only one of like 12 homicide detectives that would cover that area. Uh, so it, it was it was crazy. But supposedly they've gone through some sort of process. I don't want to give them any any positive uh, because they haven't atoned for the sins of the other five or six people that lost their lives that nobody prosecuted those cases, you know, so that's how I feel about it. I still think they're a bad, bad place. We'd like to thank the sponsors of the Elevate podcast, Steno, national court reporting service that allows trial lawyers to defer the costs of court reporting until the end of the case. Take a look, steno.com and by Law Pods. Law Pods is the podcast production company that we use to produce the show that produces uh, podcasts for lawyers all over the country. They have an expertise in podcasting and the law. Check them out at lawpods.com. I'm interested in the the negligent uh, security case in general, uh, not only because I have one coming up, but you do hear about a, a number of big verdicts around the country or settlements in these cases. And I mean, the one I have involves a convenience store, which is part of a chain. It's the, the owner is the largest national operator of convenience stores in America. So many people, probably almost everybody at some point will visit one of their stores. But in your case, most people, probably almost everybody on the jury is never going to go to that uh, complex. And so why do they, and, and the convenience store setting, it's easy to understand why people would care because they may be at that same store or one of their sister locations next week. And they want to know they're going to be safe when they go there. Even Ra Rahul's case involving the casino. I mean, most people at some point might go into a casino and not want to feel like their lives are in danger there. But in your situation, it's a little bit unique, it seems, because most people in the jury would probably choose never to go there, knowing how dangerous it is. So why would they care about that you know, location if they're not ever going to go there themselves? Yeah, so what a great point. And I, I have to ask you some questions about your case. Is it against 7-Eleven? Because if it is, we should compare notes. I've got a case right now where I'm building a case against 7-Eleven for their misconduct. My, mine is Circle K, which is, uh, okay. It's I think they've overtaken 7-Eleven now as the largest company. They're, they're owned by a Canadian-based company called Max Convenience Stores, and they operate under different brands. But the one uh, in our case is called Circle K. Do you guys have those? Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. 7-Eleven's the original who pioneered the 24-hour store. And there's a lot of, you probably know this already, but there's a lot of studies uh, on the dangers of relating to 7-Eleven specifically. Yeah. and But yeah, I'm happy to talk to you more about it offline. Uh, I've tried to yeah. get information from others. I know Randy McGinn had one in Los Angeles. You may be familiar with that, Rahul. They, they started their trial and went a couple weeks and then settled it mid-suit, but... There's a lot of these. I know it's, it's a guy named Eric Fong, is it? Yeah. Who had a big verdict. I, he was featured in TLU. I don't know him personally, but 
there have been a number of very significant verdicts in security type cases, which, but when you talk to lawyers, like um, just uh, informally, a lot of these cases seem like they'd be really hard cases for the reasons Rahul pointed out that usually the crimes are not committed by the, well, in Rahul's case, they were, uh, was the security guards themselves. But in most cases, the crimes are committed by third parties that are not necessarily controlled by the by the business and their defenses, well, you know, this was uh, unforeseeable, unanticipated event that occurred, you know, as a result of a third party criminal act that we don't have control over, we're doing our best or whatever, you know, whatever they're saying about it. There's a big parking lot rape case in Boston and again, a big verdict in that. But whatever it is, it, it, these cases do seem to uh, appeal to jurors. But I, I am, I was curious about yours just because you don't have that kind of national profile. You have a sounds like one location that's really terrible that folks, if they if they wanted to, could just try, you know, could just avoid it. Yeah. So I I was so excited to talk to you about your <laughs> your your case that I I skirted the question, but I just happened to have this book on my uh, uh, table there. It's Don Keenan's A Reptile. You know, as you can see, it's tattered, but. One of the things that Don talks about that I've really felt like was a was important and is important, and also uh, Don's former partner Charles Allen is a good friend of mine. Uh, but talking about spreading the tentacles of danger, right? H- how does that motivate Bubba, who's sitting in the jury panel? You have to have it be emotional to him too. And so I guess your question, as I see it, is how how do we motivate Bubba on our jury? you know, the members of, of Las Vegas community to be motivated to act in this case. And I think um, that was always on the forefront of my mind. Um, you know, these are 18 straight gang members. It's a random crime. Um, how do we hold a, a, an apartment complex owner responsible? And we did that in, in a number of ways. A lot of the presentation that I focused on was the taxing effect on the public resource of the police and fire department in responding to this location over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, like one of the direct examinations I did of one of the police officers was going through a typical day and showing the jurors just how many times Metro was out there in a 24-hour period and how many hours they were devoted there. And when we talked about that and we talked about some of the times, and the jurors here remember this because this was a big deal in Clark County, and I don't remember the year, but there was a period of about 18 months to two years where Metro announced, we're no longer responding to non-injury auto accidents because we don't have the resources. So if it's a non-injury, talk to your, your insurance and file a report if you feel like it's necessary, but we're not even going to respond. And that was a big deal to the Metro, or I mean, to the Las Vegas community. So we focused on that. We talked about that. We talked about that with the, with the police officers. And we would give examples like, okay, if somebody was called to this property and somebody in a nearby location had a heart attack, how would you decide what to do? And we tried to present that in a way that, that spread those tentacles of danger But also another thing that we did focus on was their advertising. You know, they advertised as being a great place for students and young families and 
senior citizens because they had, it was a budget suite, weekly, monthly, but they also had their property kind of divided to where they had some long-term tenants. And so we really focused on that. We also focused on, and, and so in focusing there, obviously we're, we're hoping to have the jurors that are young, that might've stayed there, that had college students who could recognize, yeah, my son might've stayed there. I even shared an experience and I, this is something that I look back and just think how on earth did I do that? But my wife, my wife and I, when we moved to, I started at university of Tulsa law school. I did one year there and then transferred and graduated from the U university of Utah. But we were always cost conscious. We wanted to keep our student loans way down. So my wife got a job on campus, which saved us half tuition, but she had to be there a week before the semester started. And I couldn't get out there with all the moving, the, all the van and all of that stuff. And so I sent my poor, sweet, you know, 21-year-old wife, 20-year-old wife, we married very young, out to live in Oklahoma for a week at a budget, <laughs> at a budget rental and alone. And I just look back on that and think, oh my heck, like, what was I thinking? You know, we, we're poor college students trying to save money. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was one of the ways was just showing that people do st stay in these things. They don't know that this is such a dangerous thing. And uh, they have no idea that they're stepping into this hellhole. And we had opening and closing argument and slides on that exact thing. Here's their advertising. Here's the type of people that actually live there. And then the other thing that we did is we had some witnesses that talked about the effect of how this bled into the greater Las Vegas community. You know, the Sportsman's Area Project that we had talked about how this did have an effect on the entire Boulder Highway. And so we, we hope that that also spread the tentacle, uh, the jurors and members of Clark County realize that this place is bleeding into all of our community. Another thing, um, and I don't know if this played out in your case, Ben, but in Nevada, it's a true Summers versus Tice set of body of law, which is if you're a fault-free plaintiff, then you should not be beholden to a, you know, a judgment-proof debtor if two parties played a role in your uh, injury or death. And so here, even though the 18th Street gang were the people that did the shooting, if the apartment building played any role in contributing to that death, then they're joint and severally liable for 100% of the damages. And so what that does is that places the defense and the defense counsel in a position of saying, it's 100% not our fault. And that's the only way they get out of the case. How did that play out in the defense strategy and or in your trial presentation, if at all, Ben? Yeah, that's a great point. In Nevada, like Rahul has, has just uh, summarized, if we don't name the shooters as part of our complaint, they're not on the jury verdict form, even if they're implied into the case, you know, third-partied in. So we didn't name the shooters for that particular reason. And we had done a whole bunch of big data research on that case anyway. And we found that even if they had been on the, the verdict form, their negligence was minimal after all of the facts were introduced. 
but you're exactly right. That is one thing that the defense tried to do was blame their the security company and their whole position because they didn't understand the Rockwell case, the Rockwell v. Harbor Suites or whatever the, the full site is. They didn't understand that their security company for purposes of that duty is, is their security company. So the whole case, the whole litigation was them dishing on that security company. And so at time of closing, you know, we used that as a big deal, as a hammer to pound them. And we had settled against a security company, you know, a month before trial, just because we didn't want them on the verdict form. And so they did have to take an all or nothing approach. And that I think that did, didn't set right with the jury that here you have this company that has seven, six, seven deaths. And uh, I mean, here's one, like just an example of some of the testimony. The owner of the company had one of his own security guards murdered, right? His own security guard was murdered. And this is when they did security in-house. And I remember asking him on the stand, what was his name? And he didn't, he couldn't tell me his name. And I think that just really pissed the jurors off. Like one of your own employees is, is murdered on your property and you don't even know his name. You know, that's why I don't want to give them any credit for cleaning up their property. I just, it's just not a good, not a good company, not a good person. Well, we could consume the whole hour talking about just one case, and I should point out to the listeners, you've had many successful cases and, and many large verdicts, not just that one. It, that one's particularly interesting, so it's worth talking about. You were, uh, I noticed, on the faculty of the TLU uh, event in uh, Los Angeles, where we were going to record this podcast initially, but I don't think we were able to connect with you, but... What were you teaching there? Honestly, I don't, I don't remember. I've presented at TLU, I think, four different times. TLU Vegas, the last couple of years, I presented at the Panache uh, Rabaputi event and then also the Rex Paris event. I don't remember. I could look it up, but I honestly, I don't remember. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, really. I just There was a segue to uh, maybe you can teach our listeners something if you can cover one of the topics that you've presented on. Is there an area, I know Rahul often speaks on voir dire, for example, and is there an area that you typically focus on when you're teaching? I've presented a couple times on cross-examination. I've presented on big data research, uh, also voir dire as well. Just on the big data, since you said you used that in your... $38 $38 million verdict case. How, how accurate was it in uh, predicting the verdict in that case? So it, it was fairly accurate. I don't do a lot of number research. Uh, more of what I do is uh, liability. So one thing that I like to do is how does the sequencing change the out, outcome of a decision? And so in this case, we had four different evidence presentations where we would lead with one fact and then another and then another and then another and then we would alternate so we had four big chunks of facts and we alternated that in four different sequences and after each presentation so we had 16 different votes i guess on liability 
we would present a big fact summary and then ask the, the virtual jurors, I think we had like five or 600, what is the allocation of fault between sportsmen's, uh, the security company, the shooters, and then my client. And then we would present another fact and then ask them to vote again. And then we would present another fact. And, and we went through that process four different, different ways to find out what is the most powerful way and how do we minimize the uh, responsibility of the gang members because they're not on the verdict form and we don't want the jurors to you know, think, hey, the shooters are the ones that are responsible. And it was very insightful. There was one fact in particular that really drove a lot of the, a lot of the decision-making and one fact that, I guess, for liability for the owner and then one fact that gave a lot of my client a lot of, a lot of credit and reduced his, his comparative. So that's how I use the big data. In that case, I actually used the big data in two different ways. That was one data set, and then we used another data set for the jury selection where we had them take the fill out the jury questionnaire that we were actually going to use, the specific jury questionnaire that we, we were using in our case, had the 600 virtual jurors fill that out through the data scientists uh, for jury analysts. You know, they come up with a predictive score of what the jurors are going to do. So they fill out the questionnaire, then they hear the facts, and then they vote on liability and so forth. You find out which, which jurors are going to be the best. You rate them strong green, light green, light red, and then strong red. Obviously, the darker the green, the better. The darker the red, the, wor- the more terrible <laughs> jurors. And then once we got the actual juror questionnaires back, we plugged that through the same data, through the same algorithm to score those jurors. And I would say it's, it's fairly predictive, but you cannot replace, which I don't think any software will ever do, is just a skill of the individual or individuals, the team of, of people picking the jury. Because there were some that, that were strong green that we thought, oh, this is going to be a great person that ended up not being a good jury or not being a good person for us that we felt like we, str- we strike them and we did strike them. Alternately, there were a couple of jurors that I remember that were light red or potentially maybe even one that was, was a, a red that after questioning them, flushing out some of their answers, we felt like, no, this is actually a really good juror uh, for us. And I think one of those we kept on uh, she ended up being an alternate, but had she been on the on the panel, she would have, you know, had she been involved in the decision making process, she would have been very good for us. So, I would say it's it's another data point. It, it's another data point. That issue of sequencing is really fascinating. What did you learn about? Did you are there any other than the? I'm sure there's specific facts in your case that are just specific to the case that don't have broad implication but did you learn anything generally about sequencing that we could all take away and apply to other uh, cases yes and you mentioned this earlier you or rahul i don't remember who made the comment i think maybe rahul did about the focus on the defendant right it's always the focus on the defendant always and we learned that in the sequencing of this case the fact that we had our client was very sympathetic. He was a National Guard member. He was in his HVAC program. 
he was a young man and just a good guy. We introduce those facts right off the bat, and the and the response is just it's not a good response. And and when you kind of you tuck that in way down in the presentation, I think the the presentation where we had is focus heavily on the defendant, heavily on the defendant. We insert facts about the client, then we finish strong with a strong focus on the defendant. That was the best sequencing. That was the best result. And so we structured our opening and closing on that. And that's that's how we presented it. So I think the broader application is always focus on the defendant. My general rule is in any case, and I've, I've felt like this is something, you know, Charles Allen taught me early on in my career, is spend at least two thirds of your time on the defendant before you even get to, you know, damages or your plaintiff or anything. I'm curious, how do you guys focus on that? What is your rule of thumb? If you have a rule of thumb. I mean, for me, uh, I agree with you, Ben. Yeah. I mean, uh, when we're focusing on liability, I'm generally of the belief that I need to prove my case to a jury before I ask anything from them. And so the sequencing of of trial evidence and the uh, staging of any uh, opening statement really does focus primarily on the defendants and the defendant's conduct before we then transition into what actually happened on the day of, and then finally, what are the consequences of what actually happened on the day of. That's sort of at least the, the model I start with, and then every case is obviously different as to how it actually plays out. Yeah, that's been my approach too. I tried a, a slightly different approach in the, in the last case I tried, and it, the outcome didn't go well, so maybe that that makes me think <laughs> I should go back to focusing on the defendant. I did uh, one of our colleagues who you may know, Lloyd Bell, has an approach he likes to call the Netflix opening, where he does a very short snippet of the out, the final bad thing that happens. So it might be a little video of his client in the state that they're in after what happens. Or you can think of, uh, I think of that kind of famous like Mark Lanier uh, Vioxx trial opening where he starts with the picture of the husband and wife and the husband who died from the Vioxx slowly fades away. So he's no longer in the picture. So there, there are examples where people have started with that kind of at the end, but then transitioned from that right away to the bad conduct. Um, in my recent trial, I, I, that's what I did. I did a very short snip of the my paralyzed client in her wheelchair getting from her wheelchair into the bed using the Hoyer lift and you know it's interesting the defense went right at that in their in their opening saying that we were trying to prey on sympathy by starting our case by showing pictures of our uh, injured client and maybe that was an effective response to that in general and I'm just interested to see that the the big data confirms what I think all of us have come to believe, which is that you really should be focusing and sequencing on, on the conduct of the defense first. And I think I'm going to abandon the Netflix opening and go back to that from here on out. You said that the, the, the data also highlighted that there was one most salient bit of uh, evidence 
from both from the plaintiff side and on the comparative fault side what i'm just curious what were those most salient uh items so as i recall one of the facts that was the strongest fact was the how metro had been so involved and how metro had come up with this sportsman's area project where and we used language directly from the project where metro said the root of all of the problems out on boulder highway originate from this property and then gave some statistics about that and also the length of time that this prod property had had these issues and that it was a consistent owner of the property you know that that was effective that the jurors knew this was a long-term issue the property owner had been given many opportunities i mean it actually started in 2007 with a with a list called the top seven initiative where you know metro identified the top seven highest crime properties and focused on those properties and this was this property was involved on the top seven and we're given some opportunities and that was one of the things on the timeline where we show focuses on them they increase security the second that the focus goes off then they you know they they abandon their security measures so as far as the sequencing in the big data it was focusing on that length of time and then the the metro involvement well, Ben, thank you for joining us. We're kind of at the end of this time, but we could talk to you forever about not only this case, but wanting to learn more about some of your other cases. But in the interim, if any of our listeners want to want to reach you, how do they reach you? They can call my cell phone, which is 801-913-5668, or they can shoot me an email, which is ben at the fierce firm.com. Love the name. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. I'm glad you snapped up that URL. I did. Thefiercefirm.com. That's my website. You've heard this concept of people poaching URLs when you search for them. They'll, oh, there's a name for that. I forgot what it is, but uh, I'm glad you bought it before somebody snapped it up. We, we tried to get that for our podcast and we searched for it. And by the next day, it had, someone had already bought elevate.com. So that's why we don't have it. Got uh, it. Well, it's great to meet you uh, through the uh, video conference and look forward to meeting you in person one day. I appreciate it. Thank you both for having me on. It's, a, it's an honor to be on your podcast. I respect both of you a lot. Oh, thanks so much, Ben. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E.net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.